Hello, and welcome to Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited, where we'll cover one of the many reported cases of reincarnation so we can bring the discussion out into the light about what happens to our souls after death. But before we go too much further, I'd like to thank Alexios Arctos for his amazing sound engineering and editing work, and Raphael Crooks for allowing us to use his music from the freepd.com public domain music site. This week we return once again to the Vietnam War, as we continue with Ben's memories of Terry. To fully understand the rather heavy information we get into later in this episode, I'm going to give you a quick run-through of the history so that you can understand how the Vietnam War came into being and how America became involved, because the events that occurred before the Americans entered the conflict in Vietnam affect the events that happened after. As I always say, there's a lot more to this, and this is a very quick and pared-down version of events. Before World War II, Vietnam was part of the French Empire. During World War II, it was invaded by Japan. Ho Chi Minh was the leader of the Viet Minh, which was a resistance army which fought for Vietnamese independence. After World War II, Ho Chi Minh captured Hanoi in 1945, declaring Vietnam independent. The French tried to take control again, but this was unpopular with the people and they were defeated by the Viet Minh, which was Ho Chi Minh's army, at Dien Bien Phu in 1954. Eventually, at a peace treaty hammered out in Geneva in 1954, called the Treaty of Geneva, the French agreed to leave Vietnam and the country was split along the 17th parallel until elections could be held. The 17th parallel is one of the circles of latitude that is 17 degrees north of the Earth's equilateral plane and it basically runs through Vietnam. Unfortunately, these elections never came into being. North Vietnam was now a communist republic under the rule of Ho Chi Minh and South Vietnam was a capitalist republic led by Ngo Dinh Diem. Ho Chi Minh wanted to reunite the country under a communist regime, and the South also came under increasing attack from its own communist group called the National Liberation Front. Sadly, Ngo Dinh Diem, the South Vietnamese leader, was corrupt, did not like Buddhism, and poorly treated the mainly Buddhist population. Because of this, the communist movement in South Vietnam was gaining a lot of support from the peasants, who preferred the thought of communism rather than the current corrupt leader, and so war broke out between the North and the South as Diem fought to maintain his power, and Ho Chi Minh fought to reunite the country under communism. America was becoming increasingly uneasy about the events unfolding in Vietnam. China had become communist in 1949, and President Eisenhower theorised that if one country became communist, the potential existed for the neighbouring countries to follow suit, creating a kind of domino effect, as this had happened in Eastern Europe in 1945. As such, there was a lot of apprehension about Ho Chi Minh and his communist regime, particularly with the very real threat of South Vietnam also becoming communist. In early August 1964, two US destroyers were stationed in the Gulf of Tonkin in Vietnam and they radioed that they'd been fired upon by North Vietnamese forces. President Lyndon B. Johnson requested that the US Congress allow him to use the military presence in Indochina to maintain international peace and security in Southeast Asia. This account gave the US a valid reason for America to intervene. Now, while there were already special forces already present in Vietnam prior to this date, on the 8th of March 1965, America officially sent troops into Vietnam and kept them there until March 1973. I'll add some further insight about these attacks at the end of the episode, so just keep it in mind as we move through this. This was a war that employed none of the usual gentlemanly rules of engagement. For the first time... America found itself fighting a guerrilla war against an enemy that looked identical to the civilian population. It was a war of stealth, 
dealing with an elusive enemy that was often secretly supported by the civilian population who wanted the country united under communism. America was also dealing with its own woes. It was coming to terms with its own disruptive changes as the conservative culture of the 50s was swept away in a tide of protest, demonstrations, rioting and civil unrest. The younger generation was starting to question the decisions that their parents had made and were demanding equality, freedom and civil rights. They rebelled against the conservative control of their parents and they sought out new pathways to a lighter, freer, less governed lifestyle. They were eager to turn on, tune in and drop out, as Timothy Leary phrased it, by experimenting with drugs and engaging in free love, at the same time as its politicians were drafting young men to fight in Vietnam. In the same decade that the Vietnam War played out, America reeled from five assassinations at a president that came to the brink of impeachment. It was a time when intelligence agencies like the CIA, FBI and NSA were engaging in highly covert, extremely dubious undertakings and the trust of the people became further eroded, confirming their right to question further the decision-making processes of the government and the old conservative culture. I ask you to keep this thought in the back of your mind as this becomes an important point to consider as Ben's story plays out. So let's join Ben and talk to him about his memories of life as a Vietnam veteran who has disturbing recollections about his death that raise more questions than they answer. Speaking of um, Saigon, um, in your notes, because I read them before we started, and we were talking earlier about the country music and you said that you had the memory of a song. Do you remember the song I'm talking about? Of course, yeah. You remember it being it's a long way from Saigon to Tennessee. You, you could, that right. sort of was in your head and you actually looked mm-hmm. it up and it was actually a song by Bobby Bear? Yes, Bobby Bear. So that came to me, I'm not sure when that happened. I think that happened a couple of months after I figured out who I was. I was dropping off to sleep one night and I could hear a song playing in my head on repeat and um it reminded me when i was a kid and i used to hear these songs so i was like oh it's it's that ability has come back (laughs) and i could hear also not only the 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 lyrics the sort of the main lyric i could hear the sort of backing singers because there was like backing singers and i could hear the instrumental too um there was like a piano and a fiddle and um when i woke up because i didn't immediately remember it when i woke up i I woke up because i had to go and do something and I was sort of standing in the kitchen and I was like, that song, I wonder if it's real. So I sort of decided to Google it. <laughs> I Googled the the main lyric and um, it came up and then I wanted to double check. Was this song released or was it around when I would have been in Vietnam in that first tour? And yeah, it was released, uh, I think it was released the year before. And I could imagine actually the soldiers singing something like that and actually putting those words, long way from Saigon to Tennessee. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, I found that really fascinating when you mentioned that. I thought that was incredible. So with regard to you now had an idea of who this person was, it's difficult because you've got this memory that doesn't seem to fit with the rest of the memories you have of Terry, which indicates or seems to indicate that his life did actually finish or end in the States, which right. causes uh, you quite a lot of angst, I think, is because it's very hard to reconcile. And it touches on a very difficult subject, and that is what did happen to some of the MIAs and POWs during the Vietnam War. And mm-hmm. it's it's something that is also difficult for you to deal with because of the complication and the implication that right. maybe was he brought back to the States in some sort of covert form because he never right. contacted the family again. So he must mm-hmm. have been brought back in some other role or form. And given he was so talented skilled he would be right. useful yeah and that is a really tricky subject <laughs> it's as tricky as having past life memories i would say so it's like for me there's been like a, a parallel investigation there's one aspect which is me investigating past life memories and then there's a the parallel one which is me investigating this whole issue which is in america which is were there men left behind after the vietnam war and if there were what happened to them you know and how many were there and in fact 
both topics of being of past life memories and reincarnation and the POW MIA issue are controversial topics and, and also both topics have a lot of misconceptions about them and conspiracy type things about them and when you just want to be able to get at the truth of what's really happening it's easy to sort of get misled or go off on a wild goose chase especially when there's so much information out there and there's so much confusion about what happened and also even deception and cover-ups and so on but yeah about the covertly coming back to america well as i was kind of figuring out what my dream meant that did cross through my mind perhaps that is what happened to me and for me that is even more difficult to understand and to sort of assimilate than if i died in captivity in vietnam because it has a lot of implications about it it's not it's not straightforward and um as i was kind of as i've been investigating this whole thing i came across several cases of people who were supposedly given different identities and returned to the united states sometime in and sometimes other countries but i think mostly it was the united states in a kind of witness protection type program and when you're reading this stuff you think this sounds absolutely crazy i mean how can this be you know but for me it's not a case of did this really happen or not it's a case of just getting at the truth what what occurred whatever that may be there's been a lot of stuff that's been kept very quiet and kept and they have done covert things they have done things that are really bonkers but they still yep. did them because that was the age and the time yeah i mean about terry's case his mia case there was an investigator who actually talked uh, i think she talked in congress about his case because they when they were thinking about normalizing the relations between uh, american vietnam back in the 90s i think it was was it i don't know when it was i think it was maybe late 90s or whatever because there was somebody who cited terry in captivity in early 1970s sort of 19 up to 1972 i think he saw saw him and he came forward in 1973 apparently he was a defector i mean he defected from the north nva which is the north vietnamese army and then came to uh the other side this is um, a vietnamese person yes a vietnamese person <clears throat> who apparently cited some prisoners american prisoners in a prisoner of war camp in south vietnam and one of the prisoners that he cited matched very very closely the description to my previous self to the point where analysts said it could be me or another person just two men out of the whole mia cases who it could be and um i have investigated this um the, these cases and this other investigator also investigated and um we outruled the other person because the other person most likely died in the incident and where the incident of that person's going missing happened was actually not even in vietnam it was cambodia it wasn't actually but it was covert so they they lied and said it was south vietnam but actually it was cambodia so it definitely could not have been that person so that leaves only one person that this this vietnamese person to converse with i mean he got things very accurate down to a scar behind the ear that terry had and he described a tattoo that was on his arm and as far as i'm aware and as terry's family are aware terry never had a, a tattoo but he described a tattoo that was a dragon and the unit that terry served with was known as the dragons so it's possible he, he got the tattoo actually while he was on his second tour of duty well that is what people have said that it was quite possible because actually that doesn't sound unlikely it sounds like it could have happened so he he mentioned his first name got the first name right and he mentioned that he was an artillery captain that was also right so that's rank and and the fact that he was an artillery captain and he also mentioned that he came from texas which was also right what about um, the so the alternate person that it could have been did his descriptions match him at all, at all in any way the, the um, guy who died in cambodia the, it, it matched only on the front that he was from texas he wasn't um, artillery he, or anything. No, he was a sergeant. He, but he had, and also, he mentioned that he'd worked with special forces too as an Arvin advisor, which t Terry had done. 
So it's a very, very accurate description. So this defector came forward to the press to talk about not only that he'd seen prisoners in captivity, but other things about the war that were going on at the time. And the press who were there were sent, there was a cable that came from Washington, D.C., and they were told to downplay the details of this defector, not to report anything about the prisoners. Because it was basically when they were signing the Paris Peace Accords, and obviously it was a very sensitive time. They didn't want anything that could potentially... Upset the apple cut. Well, yeah, and, 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 and there's been evidence that they knew that there were still some men being left behind in Vietnam and in Laos, mostly in Laos. And they were going to sort of, in fact, Nixon had apparently promised some money under the table and that they would sort of deal with it after they've signed these accords. But then, of course, Watergate happened. Nixon got thrown out. Nobody wanted to give money to the Vietnamese. So it never happened. Yeah. So literally you were kind of just left. Yeah. I think we might leave Ben's account there for a little while because there's a lot of information we need to unpack and explore before we can continue. After listening to Ben's account, there might be people doubting Ben's memories of being shot and killed in America and his feelings that he was brought home covertly to live a secret life. Ben himself often fights his own logic in regard to these memories as his rational mind keeps telling him this can't be the truth. And yet in all the time I've known him, this is the only memory he's ever spoken of with regard to his death. It has never changed, it has never wavered, and Ben keeps reluctantly coming back to the unpleasant acceptance that this, as with his other memories, feels like the truth. To show just how difficult it is to pin down the truth about the Vietnam War, it's time to dive down the rabbit hole and reveal all of the information that has come out since the end of the war. It's a snake's nest of lies, betrayal and self-interest, and there's a lot of it. So buckle up because we're in for a journey. In fact, the deception begins right at the very point of America's entrance into the war. If you recall, I spoke in the introduction to this episode about two US destroyers being attacked in the Gulf of Tonkin, with those attacks being the impetus that gave America the excuse to enter into the conflict in Vietnam. Documents have since emerged that indicate that these accounts were untrue. The first attack definitely did happen, but the later attack, and it was the combined two attacks that were used as evidence of aggression, was a false alarm, created by over-eager readings by sonographers on the ship and confusion over sonar images relating to waves, rather than enemy aggressors. This information was withheld by US Secretary of Defence Robert McNamara, allowing Lyndon Johnson to use the attacks as a reason to enter the war. I can't work out whether Lyndon Johnson was aware that the second account was erroneous or not, Regardless, it certainly does paint a picture of the people in power at the time being willing to be deceptive to meet their own agenda. So what about the CIA? Where do they fit in all this? I've mentioned that during this period of time, they were engaging in shadowy, illegal, ethically and morally dubious operations. Some of these operations in particular relate directly to this case and to the outcome of what happened to the men who were missing in action or prisoners of war in Vietnam. However, I'll go into detail about that in a moment. From here on in, I'll call them by the acronyms MIAPOWs as they are known today. Confidential documents of the CIA that were released in 2007, with large sections of the documents being censored or redacted, revealed incidents during the decade of the Vietnam War of domestic wiretapping of persons of interest in the US, as was done to Marilyn Monroe in the years leading up to her death because of her association with the Kennedy brothers and on Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. There were failed assassination plots of foreign leaders, mind control experiments using LSD and spying on journalists. The worst of these endeavours was by far the experiments performed on U.S. citizens. Chemist Sidney Gottlieb 
was involved in LSD experiments, and these mind-control experiments were carried out in universities and research centres after they received funding covertly, but they were also carried out in prisons and detention centres in Japan, Germany and the Philippines. Journalist Stephen Kinzer spoke to Gottlieb about his work. Gottlieb described that his patients endured psychological torture from receiving electroshocks to high doses of LSD. He realised that the only way to control a mind was to blast away the existing mind and then insert a new mind into the resultant empty space. According to Kinzer, Gottlieb didn't get far on the reinsertion, but he certainly made progress on the first step. And let's think about that for a minute. That means that innocent students and people attending medical centres were subjected to this experiment that literally destroyed their minds on an untested and incomplete theory. The arrogance of assuming you have the right to do that is mind-blowing. It is akin to murder because you are obliterating the very things that make that person who they are. Kinzer notes that the top-secret nature of Gottlieb's work makes it difficult to measure the human cost on Gottlieb's patients, and he states, We don't know how many people died, but a number did, and many lives were permanently destroyed. And these are just the things that the CIA are willing to admit to. There remains an extensive number of files that are still classified. If they're willing to own up to wiretapping and spying on their own citizens, attempted assassinations of other world leaders and experimentation on its own people with mind-altering drugs, what else could they have done that is so controversial that it's still classified now? Let's have a look at the Watergate scandal, which for our younger listeners was a scandal that erupted around the then Republican President Richard Nixon because members of his office organised two break-ins which included wiretapping of the Democrats' office in the Watergate building. Now, the CIA has repeatedly and at times vehemently denied any involvement in the events that unfolded. However, it cannot be denied that four of the burglars caught that night on entering the Watergate complex for the second time had worked in the CIA and were part of the team that either collaborated on or participated in the overthrow attempts of Castro. A fifth burglar of the seven who were caught had worked in a senior position in the agency's internal police force. Then we come to March 16, 1968, during the Vietnam conflict, where US soldiers in Charlie Company killed approximately 567 South Vietnamese civilians in what became known as the My Lai Massacre. Don't look it up if you love children. The pictures will break your heart. When the knowledge of the My Lai Massacre surfaced, it created a furor in America, but ultimately no one was ever held accountable for this atrocity. The platoon commander, Lieutenant William Kelly Jr., was given a life sentence. However, once again, Richard Nixon pops up in our account because he entered into the fray and altered Kelly's sentence to house arrest instead, releasing him three and a half years later. Twenty-six soldiers were tried in military courts, but none were convicted. And the tragic thing is, my lay was just the tip of the iceberg. Information has now arisen that in 1968, the 9th Infantry Division under the command of General Julian Yule supposedly was ordered to round up and exterminate Viet Cong in South Vietnam, claiming a body count of 11,000 South Vietnamese civilians, even though they only recovered fewer than 750 captured weapons. Yule's behaviour earned him the nickname the Butcher of the Delta. A whistleblower wrote to the U.S. Army Chief of Staff, William Westmoreland, pleading for an investigation. He said that the slaughter was equivalent to a Miley massacre occurring every month. Westmoreland responded by ignoring the whistleblower, scuppering a budding inquiry and burying the files, but not before an internal Pentagon report validated some of the whistleblower's most damning allegations. 
By now, we've established that both politicians and various intelligence groups were indeed engaging in some nefarious enterprises with regard to the US and also Vietnam. So let's get to the part that affects Ben. To do that, we need to look at how missing men and prisoners of war fared at the end of the war, because America reacted no better with its MIA POW policy. The sad beginning of the whole situation comes back to our old friend, Richard Nixon, who certainly seems to have earned his unfortunate nickname, Tricky Dicky. Nixon was desperate to get out of Vietnam, and as he found himself being mired in the Watergate scandal, he instructed Henry Kissinger, his national security adviser and chief negotiator with Vietnam, at the Paris peace talks to get America out of the war no matter what it took. So on January 27, 1973, the United States and Vietnam signed a peace agreement. On that day, the North Vietnamese gave the United States their list of American prisoners. It showed only 591 men, a figure far below the expected number by US intelligence. However, the US now found itself in an impossible position. The agreement was signed, and nobody wanted to wade back into war again on the issue of unaccounted for MIAs and POWs, effectively accusing Vietnam of lying about the men they held. Two months after the signing, Hanoi released the last of the 591 men it had offered up, and Nixon went on national television to tell America, all of our American POWs are on their way home. There has since been a massive evidence to prove that Nixon must have known that this was not the case. So not only did he lie to the American public, he turned his back on his own men. The truth of it was, America failed to act to bring its men home initially, and then it became embarrassing for them to do so. How do you explain the fact that you left your soldiers behind in camps for up to 25 years after the war ended? No president is going to want to bring emaciated, broken men shuffling off a plane decades after the end of a war when a prior president had assured the American public that all men were accounted for. There is no way to spin that into a positive outcome. Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Sidney Shanberg wrote extensively about the MIAs, and his articles cover in detail America's mishandling of the MIA POW situation, and I will link his editorial to my Facebook page for you to read, because there's a lot more to it than I can relate. There's just not the room to fit it all in. The upshot of it is, though, that at the end of the war, only nine prisoners were released from Laos. Experts in military intelligence questioned this, as their information indicated that there were over 300 men missing, and their field reports indicated those men were still alive in the Laos area. Reports kept coming in of sighting of men for years after the war. Numerous messages were intercepted of exchanges between Laotian military units that demonstrated clearly that American prisoners were being transferred from prison to prison and then from labour camp to labour camp. Almost unbelievably, all three US intelligence agencies refused to consider these reports to be credible, reasoning that because the intercepts came from a third party, namely the country of Thailand, they couldn't be considered evidence. According to the guidelines of the American intelligence community, third-party information can never be regarded as valid on its own, leaving these unfortunate soldiers in an administrative void. So the question has to be asked if they couldn't consider the reports valid in and of themselves, given the fact that they were receiving them frequently, why did no one ever check them out and see if there was further evidence to substantiate them? Some of these reports were verified by an independent source on the ground, but still, the CIA, FBI and NSA refused to act, even though these reports were coming from groups in Thailand that had actually been trained by the NSA. As the years progressed, the CIA's own satellite systems detected distress signals in the form of markings on the ground in Vietnam and Laos, 
and these markings were the exact markings that soldiers were taught to make in their survival courses they took before they were deployed to Vietnam. If they ever became prisoners, they were told to make the form of an X or K drawn in a special way or to spell out their individual four-digit authenticator numbers that were given to many pilots who flew in Vietnam. And sometimes they simply just carved out their own names. And what was done about these markings that were discovered by the CIA and the Pentagon? The awful answer is absolutely nothing. Time and again, the Pentagon backed by the CIA, dismissed these signals as nothing more than shadows and grass. Finally, one Senate investigator, Bob Taylor, who was a highly regarded intelligence analyst, reviewed the images to see for himself what was being captured on film. His final response was to disagree with his colleagues that the images showed only shadows and grass replying sardonically, if grass can spell out people's names and a secret digital code, then I have a new respect for grass. But perhaps the worst realisation of all comes with the revelation that documentation also showed signs of actually being altered to cover up the existence of missing MIA POWs. Shanberg tells us that documents retrieved from the National Archives show that some of these radio intercepts that were reported were quite simply removed from the files. One of the documents released is a paper copy of a radio intercept about prisoners being moved within Laos. On it, the NSA chief in Southeast Asia, John O'Dell, had written, Purge files of any traffic on this subject. So not only did they ignore the cries for aid from their own soldiers, they deliberately and actively worked against the discovery of the MIA POWs. With all of the events I've listed, it becomes clear that America, rather than making a concerted effort to intervene for their soldiers, opted instead to hide the evidence of their mismanagement of the situation and decided to bury the truth. In doing so, they effectively buried their own missing men. The situation was further complicated by the court-martial of returned POW Robert Garwood. Robert Garwood enlisted in the Marines when he was 18 years old and was deployed to Vietnam in 1964. On September 28, 1965, Private Garwood was driving a jeep in the countryside near the city of Da Nang, South Vietnam, and he never returned to base. He was only 10 days away from ending his tour of Vietnam and returning home when he disappeared. It's unclear what happened, but he found himself in the hands of the Viet Cong. So just to remind you, because all these factions can be confusing, the Viet Cong were the army of South Vietnam's branch of the local Communist Party that was supporting Ho Chi Minh and his soldiers, the Viet Minh, in North Vietnam, because they wanted communism in South Vietnam. Garwood's family were notified he was missing in action, presumed captured. Garwood was marched under armed guard into North Vietnam and over the next few years was spotted in several camps. Garwood didn't end up coming back to the States until 1979, six years after the 591 soldiers were released from the camps and returned home at the end of the war. The problem set in for Garwood with reports by other prisoners that during his time in the camps, Garwood had knowingly collaborated with the enemy so that he would receive favourable treatment. They claimed he went so far as to adopt a Vietnamese name, wore a Vietnamese uniform and actually was armed and performed guard duty over other soldiers and even participated in interrogations of other soldiers. The former prisoners related that he also shared living quarters with the North Vietnamese guards. It is claimed he also participated in propaganda against the US and appeared on broadcasts condemning America and urging other US soldiers to defect too. Garwood denied these charges of collaboration, claiming he underwent the same torture and starvation as the other prisoners, which impaired his mental judgment and led to his reasoning being diminished. He claimed that the strain of captivity was too overwhelming and he snapped and in his diminished capacity, he swapped sides. The US Department of Defence investigated the claims and court-martialed Garwood. Garwood repeated his claim that he'd crossed to the other side after snapping and offered up a plea of temporary insanity. 
1981, a jury of five Marine officers found Garwood guilty of collaborating with the enemy, which included the physical assault of a US prisoner. He was denied his back pay and was dishonourably discharged. He later claimed that the reason he never returned home earlier was that North Vietnam would not allow him to go home because he knew too much. And it's easy to judge Garwood for his actions, and they're not actions that he should be proud of, but getting through Vietnam was tough for everybody, and none of us can say with any certainty what we would do if we faced a similar situation. But Garwood's court-martial left the governing bodies in a further quandary as to what to do with the men still remaining in Vietnam. Now they had missing men that they knew were still prisoners, and the possibility that some of them might have been collaborators and traitors, which could explain why they were not included in the numbers and released. Now, I want to make a point here with that thought in mind. The assumption shouldn't be made that all of the men left behind betrayed their country. The other reason MIA POWs might not have been returned by Vietnam could possibly be for financial gain. It is possible that highly trained soldiers may have been held back by Vietnam in the hopes of returning them for money in the future. In another article, Sidney Shanberg uncovered a transcript from a senior North Vietnamese general's briefing of the Hanoi Politburo, which was discovered in Soviet archives by an American scholar in 1993. The briefing took place four months before the Paris Peace Accords, and the general, Tran Van Quang, told the Politburo members that Hanoi was holding 1,205 American prisoners, but would keep many of them at the end of the war as leverage to ensure getting war reparations from Washington. Interestingly, they did the same thing with the French in the earlier conflicts. Throughout the Paris peace talks, the North Vietnamese tied the prisoner issues closely to the issue of reparations and they were determined not to deal with them separately. Finally, in a formal letter dated 2nd of February 1973, Nixon pledged Hanoi's Premier Pham Van Dong $3.25 billion in post-war reconstruction aid, as he called it, without any political conditions. He also added the codicil that said that the aid would be implemented by each party in accordance with its own constitutional provisions. And basically what that gobbledygook means is that Nixon promised the money for war reparations to get their men back, knowing that Congress would have to approve the allocation of funds, and both Nixon and Kissinger knew full well that Congress was not likely to do that. Of course, the money was never released, and the prisoners of war remained captive. All of this information about the POWs now leads us to a very interesting exchange that was related to investigators who were looking into the circumstances surrounding the MIA POWs, and it's an exchange that lends credence to Ben's memories. In late 1992, a Senate Select Committee was formed to look into the POW MIA situation. A reporter named David E. Hendricks, who worked for the Press Enterprise newspaper, appeared at the Senate committee to relate testimony of interviews with two men he'd spoken to when he became interested in the MIA POW situation. In his testimony, Mr. Hendricks relates speaking to a man called George Russell Leard, who detailed that in approximately 1981 or thereabouts, a secret program was running that allowed MIA POWs to be returned to the States quietly and covertly via an island somewhere in the Pacific. Mr Laird himself was a retired Air Force technical sergeant and he says that he worked on this program. Some of these returned prisoners came back openly, but the rest were given new names and identities. The purpose was to allow the men to return back to the States without facing the same risk of court-martial that Garwood did, and also partly to protect them, as after such a long period of incarceration, many of the men were showing signs of being institutionalised. Mr Leard indicates that some of the returned men even opted to return to Southeast Asia because they were now more integrated into an Asian lifestyle than an American one at that point. 
Obviously, it was also to hide the actual numbers of survivors from the camps and therefore reduce the scandal that would be associated with these returning men if it all came out. The number of men returning in this way was approximately 275, according to Mr Leard. But he did also state that the program could have been running longer, but he could only give evidence about the time that he worked there. So it is possible that the number of men returning home through this program could have been higher. Given this account, Ben's memories of being returned to the States covertly under an assumed name and a new identity suddenly become a lot more convincing. You might be wondering, well, if this secret program did exist and it was spoken about in the Senate committee, why didn't this become common knowledge? Why do we not know more about these returned men? Well, the Senate committee found itself coming up against an unusual problem. Some of the investigators in the committee were truly determined to investigate the MIA POW issue and they were able to provide compelling data that really did go to good lengths to uncover the POW story. They acknowledged that intelligence reports indicated that, quote, there can be no doubt that POWs were alive as late as 1989. However, they repeatedly found themselves being stymied by Senator John Kerry, John McCain and their cohorts, who were both important and respected members of the committee running the hearings. Kerry outwardly appeared to want the issue investigated, but in reality was interested in ending the embargo against Vietnam and improving relations between the US and Vietnam. Stirring the pot about missing POWs was certainly not conducive to Kerry's agenda. He denied any partnership with the CIA when asked to comment on the allegations, but as Shanberg puts it, Kerry had an inappropriately cosy relationship with the Defence Department given he was the head of the committee and the committee was investigating the Defence Department. As one staffer wrote in a memo that was somehow preserved, speaking for the other investigators, I can say we are sick and tired of this investigation being controlled by those we are supposedly investigating. According to Shanberg's article, staffers were refused access to files even though they had received permission from the Department of Defence to view them. Kerry also arranged meetings and committee meetings in a way that made the Pentagon a virtual partner in the committee's inquiry, even though it was the Pentagon that was actually a subject of the probe. Kerry's chief counsel and old friend, Bill Cadena, maintained unusually close ties with Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defence Alan Patak throughout the investigation, and staffers noticed that the Pentagon always seemed to know the committee's moves almost before they did. But it was John McCain's behaviour that was the most baffling betrayal of the missing men. Senator John McCain, a Navy pilot and returned POW himself, was returned with the 590 other men at the end of the war. When he returned home, he was lauded as a hero and awarded medals for his service. His service opened political doors for him and he was elected to the United States Senate where he served six terms. He was a high-profile and central figure in the Senate committee. Before the Senate committee, one of the sharpest critics of the Pentagon's performance had been an insider, General Eugene Tai, who headed the Defence Intelligence Agency during the 70s. Tai openly challenged the Pentagon's viewpoint that no live prisoners existed, stating that the evidence proved otherwise. McCain was a bitter opponent of Tai's. When Tai cited a large volume of evidence that the POWs still remained alive in 1986, the Pentagon and its allies started a smear campaign against this highly regarded intelligence officer and whispers were released to reporters that Tai was ineffective, implying that he was suffering from senility and he was eventually forced to retire. As mentioned, McCain himself had been a POW. He had experienced the same brutality, torture and starvation at the hands of his captors. But unlike his fellow POWs, McCain was the son of John S. McCain, commander of all of the US forces in Vietnam. His father's status led to an offer being made to release him from the camp in a show of goodwill from the Vietnamese. 
McCain refused, saying he would not accept the release unless every POW imprisoned up to that point was released too, an offer that Vietnam obviously rejected. So McCain stayed and endured the abuse, which escalated after his refusal. He was bound and beaten every two hours while suffering from heat exhaustion and dysentery. During his capture, he was forced to release an anti-USA confession, which played in the camps, but also on local radio. McCain was released with the other soldiers that were handed over at the end of the war. You would think that McCain would have been one of the most ardent supporters of the MIA POWs still stuck in Vietnam. But surprisingly, he became their worst nightmare. McCain was quite rudely dismissive of MIA POW supporters, calling their cries to be heard the bizarre rantings of the MIA hobbyists. He vilified them as hoaxes, charlatans, conspiracy theorists and dime store rambos. Retired Colonel Ted Guy, himself a highly admired POW, who was one of the most dogged resistors in the camps, wrote an angry open letter to McCain in an MIA newsletter, asking him if these titles should be applied to other senators who did believe men were left behind, or to the families of the missing who had overwhelming information that their loved ones were still alive in the camps, or indeed to McCain's fellow POWs. McCain was described as having an explosive temper, and a veteran congressman who had observed him for years commented, this is a man not at peace with himself. He browbeat expert witnesses who came in with information about unreturned POWs during the Senate hearing. He was verbally abusive to family members of missing POWs who sought him out for help. He screamed at them and insulted them, bringing women to tears. In 1996, he roughly pushed aside a group of POW family members, including a mother in a wheelchair who'd been waiting outside the hearing room to speak to him. His responses were often versions of the question, how dare you question my patriotism? And I find that a telling comment to make. A perfect example was McCain's treatment of Dolores Alfond. Mrs Alfond, chair of the National Alliance of Families and sister of missing airman Captain Victor Apodaca, appeared before the commission requesting information about a classified program known as Pave Spike. Pave Spike is a data collection system the government had created which involved a spike with an electronic pod and an antenna on the top, and these devices were dropped out of planes and they were designed to equalise and position themselves spiked down so that as they fell, they would, when they landed, they would stick into the ground. They were dropped along the Ho Chi Minh Trail and other supply routes. While these spikes were data collection systems, they also had a rescue capability too, and soldiers were taught how to enter information into the spikes, so knowledge of their whereabouts could be retrieved. In 1974, one year after the supposed return of all prisoners, data from a spike showed that a person or people had manually entered 20 authenticator numbers that corresponded exactly to the classified authenticator numbers of 20 US POWs who were lost in Laos. Ms Alfond added that the intelligence was seamless. I think by that she means the information was pure, coming directly from only someone who could know that information, but she questioned that the committee hadn't discussed it or released knowledge about Pave Spike. McCain attended the meeting specifically to confront Mrs Alford because of her criticism of the panel's work. He roared at her and berated her for some time, his face red with anger, and he accused her of denigrating his patriotism. His bullying worked and she started to cry. When she rallied and started to respond to his abuse, he turned on his heel and left the room. And no, the Pave Spike file has never been declassified and we still don't know what happened to those 20 missing men. But McCain's worst betrayals happened in his manipulation of legislation surrounding information about MIA POWs. In 1990, legislation called the Truth Bill was proposed about the prisoners and missing men. It was a powerful bill compelling governmental departments to display total transparency about information received about the men, 
the Pentagon strongly opposed the truth bill, and so it disappeared, only to have a new measure, known as the McCain Bill, appear, which created such a bureaucratic tap dance to access documentation on MIA POWs that the documentation was effectively buried, never to emerge again. Only documents that don't pertain to secrets about MIA POWs is allowed to be released. And that law is still in place today. The McCain Bill actually spells out for the Pentagon and other agencies several rationales, excuses and justifications for not releasing information at all. As if that wasn't enough, McCain was also instrumental in amending the Missing Service Personnel Act, which had been strengthened in 1995 by the POW advocates to include criminal penalties to any government official who knowingly and willfully withheld information about POW MIAs. One year later, in a closed House Senate conference on an unrelated military bill, McCain, at the bidding of the Pentagon, attached a crippling amendment to the Missing Service Personnel Act, which was not the bill they were there to discuss at all, stripping out the criminal penalties and reducing the obligations of commanders in the field to merely being required to quickly search for missing men and report the incident to the Pentagon, at which point, of course, the Pentagon would receive the information and bury it, never to be seen again. But how does a man who understood the difficulties for POWs so acutely because he suffered the same abuse consign them to such a brutal and unrelenting torment. It would be really easy to consider him a monster for doing this to his brothers-in-arms. I think Sidney Shanberg hit the nail on the head when he spoke about the John McCain that came back from the war. McCain, as a POW, finally buckled under the torture and the beatings and reluctantly issued anti-American propaganda because he quite literally reached his breaking point and couldn't take any more. To put that in context, McCain admitted in his autobiography, Faith of My Fathers, that he felt bad during his captivity because he knew he was being treated more leniently than the other prisoners with his Vietnamese captors calling him the Crown Prince because he was considered to be a prize catch, and he buckled when he was getting better treatment. When he came home from the war, the shame of that confession affected him deeply. He wrote that he still winced deeply at the thought of his father hearing of his disgrace. He spoke to his father about the confession, and his father didn't indicate that he'd heard of it before, when in reality he had indeed heard of it, and McCain found that out later. How do you take that lack of response? It's not a damning indictment, but neither is it a compassionate understanding of why McCain was forced to make the decision he did. McCain is a man who feels he let his country down, and is filled with shame at voicing anti-American propaganda after being tortured. He comes home to a hero's welcome and uses his newfound respect from his military career to craft a political career from it. At what point did he realise that he was now part of the machinery that was suppressing information about the missing men? Imagine the feeling of survivor's guilt of being one of the lucky ones who were freed, particularly when you use your rep as a hero to become a politician, thereby becoming a part of the hierarchy that has betrayed them. How do you reconcile that? You either have to acknowledge that you've made yet another mistake and turn your back and start opposing your current colleagues who've been your supporters and allies, or you can't accept what you're seeing. So you double down and deny it, just as all of the self-serving politicians leading up to that point had done before. McCain wasn't a bad man. He was a man who had suffered greatly during his wartime experience, but by closing his eyes to the men that he served with, he sealed their fate. And I can't think of a worse betrayal than that. To come back to the Senate hearing... Committee staffers came across transcripts of electronic messages from the Pentagon confirming their worst fears that the stalling was being done to provide time for them to largely whitewash the files and remove any documents that they didn't want the committee to see. 
Approximately 25 of the files went missing, never to be seen by the committee, and some of those documents are known to have contained crucial information on discussions that took place about the MIA POWs. Not surprisingly, given the interference of the CIA and the Pentagon, the findings of the committee were so muddied and watered down that the committee's findings were largely dismissed then the results of the committee were considered inconclusive with regard to the remaining MIA POWs. There's no denying that the CIA and the FBI have engaged in some extremely useful work and done some great things, particularly in light of the terrorism that has become a concern since 9-11. In fact, they have managed to foil quite a few terrorist attacks that could have cost many lives. But we keep on coming back to the age-old question. Who watches the watchdogs? The trouble with having a secret organisation is that you are, by the very nature of its foundation, creating an environment that works outside the boundaries of our recognised laws and ethically or morally dubious behaviour is easy to justify as being acceptable because it's for the good of the country. I normally like to end my episodes on a positive note, but sadly this time there is no happy ending. Intelligence gathered indicates a secondary camp system was created in Vietnam to keep the MIA POWs hidden covertly away from the mainstream prison camps, although, of course, the Pentagon vehemently denies any knowledge of this. A Vietnamese defector, Lee Din, and I think this is the one Ben was talking about, had worked in Hanoi's intelligence sector for four years and had seen and met with US POWs. He was interviewed in Paris in 1979 and 1980 by Pentagon intelligence officials. Their own report quotes him as saying Vietnam had retained over 700 soldiers as a strategic asset to force payment of reparations and that he had seen the secondary camps. As time has gone on, it has become politically impossible to reveal the existence of these men. At first, they were an embarrassment to the US and a bargaining chip to the Vietnamese. After the refusal of the US to pay reparations, they became an inconvenience and worse, an encumbrance to Vietnam's aspirations of creating international business and trade opportunities. Vietnamese witnesses have reported they saw 81 graves clustered around the five secret camps and they drew diagrams of burial sites. They state these Americans had died of disease, malnutrition and as a result of the rigorous hard labour they had to endure. Some sources stated they even witnessed burials. These sources were described as credible by intelligence sources. Some were given polygraphs and passed. The five secret camps they spoke of were Kiet Chien, Than Phong, Bai, Ha Son Bin and Tan Lap Phu Tho. One source claimed to have seen prisoners from a distance of 30 to 50 metres on a daily basis and that's about 98 feet to 164 feet. Reports filtered in from various sources over the years of encounters with American soldiers. Since the end of the war, Vietnam has turned over nearly 300 sets of remains that have been identified as American. None of these remains have been definitively proven to have come from men who died after the war. Time and natural attrition appears to have made America and Vietnam's grubby little secret disappear, leaving a trail of broken hearts and ruined families in its wake as they deal with the uncertainty of what happened to their loved ones. Thank you for listening to Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited. We hope you enjoyed this case and we will continue on with part three next week. If you have any interesting stories about reincarnation or if you can relate your own past life experiences, I'd love to hear about them and I can be contacted through my email at reincarnationplr at gmail.com or via my Facebook page called Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited. If you'd like to support me, I'd be honoured if you'd become a Patreon supporter. You can find me on Patreon under Reincarnation PLR. I do do extra content now and your support helps me to keep pumping out content faster and lets me keep on doing what I hope you love hearing. We'll be back again soon with the conclusion of this episode, but until then, remember you are unique and your life has a purpose.